from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. How do attorneys deal with that if you know something terrible has happened and that somebody should have to pay up? Do you just sue everybody? Uh, absolutely. Everyone involved in this is going to get sued, the manufacturer as well as the park itself and potentially the uh, employee uh, who was responsible for ensuring that this, this kid was locked into this ride. Here's something that he did that's sort of part of an event that's universally condemned. And his theory is, I'm going to turn it around and make it good for me. I respect his chutzpah, his cleverness. But I'm kind of with Connie and Nicole. I, I think he's going to lose. <laughs> One of the exceptions to copyright law is that you can use it for news reporting. Josh Hawley is not using it for news reporting. He's using it to make money. So somebody should be able to declare it a crime scene and give everybody five minutes to leave. And anybody that's left behind should or can be arrested. Yeah, the problem with that concept is that we have to have something when we arrest people called probable cause. And probable cause can't be for an entire group of people. I'm Sarah Fenske. A journalist captured U.S. Senator Josh Hawley outside the Capitol on January 6, 2021. His photo of Hawley pumping his fist at supporters has become one of the most iconic images of the January 6th riots. But does Hawley have the right to use that photo? What if he sells, say, coffee mugs featuring his own mug? Could the, the news site's owner pursue a case for copyright infringement? And what about the Florida amusement park that strapped a teen into its free-fall tower drop ride, even though he was 53 pounds over the weight limit? Could the family have a case against the park, or is the ride manufacturer to blame? Well, those are questions for lawyers. And so it's fortunate that today is our legal roundtable, and we are joined by three expert attorneys. Nicole Gorofsky is a former prosecutor in both state and federal court, and she currently practices at Gorofsky Law, LLC. Nicole Gorofsky, welcome back. Thanks for having me. We are also joined today by Connie McFarlane-Butler. Connie is a former partner at Armstrong Teasdale, and in 2010, she founded her own firm, the law office of Connie McFarlane-Butler in Florissant. Connie, welcome back. Thank you, Sarah. And last but not least, making his legal roundtable debut today is Beavis Shock. He practices in Clayton at Shock Law. Beavis, welcome. Thank you, Sarah. So we will definitely talk about Josh Hawley today, and we will talk about this amusement park tragedy. But first, I want to talk about a fierce debate in the city of St. Louis. This is over the administration of Mayor Tashara Jones's handling of a case involving qualified immunity for city police. Attorney Javad Kazali is representing a man who was swept up in the mass arrests that followed a night of protests in St. Louis in September of 2017. Retired Air Force Colonel, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Brian Bowdy, stepped outside to see the damage and was rounded up in what's been called a kettling maneuver. He was zip-tied and held for 14 hours, along with 100 other people. Now, the city has argued that Bowdy's lawsuit should be thrown out. Under the doctrine of qualified immunity, they say, police officers cannot be sued for actions unless they're really egregious. They said kettling and mass arrests don't rise to that level. The city has now lost that argument several times in U.S. District Court and at the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. But after they lost at the Court of Appeals, the city asked the entire Eighth Circuit to revisit the case. This is called an en banc hearing. Nicole, what is the city's request in this kind of en banc uh, hearing request? So the city asked for, filed a motion for a rehearing um, in front of the entire Eighth Circuit en banc, and en banc which is actually a, a difficult word to say. Um, so basically, that's one of the steps that you have to take before you are going to move on to seeking cert in the United States Supreme Court. So um, that's something that the city would automatically do, I think, um, pretty often if they wanted to appeal this case. So um, basically, though, the city was saying the Eighth Circuit was wrong for saying uh, that this was an exception to qualified immunity in this case. And uh, they're asking the Eighth Circuit to rehear it and um, overrule their own ruling. 
So Javad Kazali has been very outspoken about the fact that he is disappointed that Mayor Jones would do this. You know, he said she's supposed to be a progressive and what she's asking for here would expand qualified immunity for St. Louis police. Beavis, do you think he's, he's got a point there? Well, I think his point is ridiculous. Um, every defense counsel, I do civil rights cases all day long, every civil rights defense counsel battles every single step of the way to the bitter end. We take in these cases telling the clients it takes four or five years at least to win. Now, sometimes we win them on a letter. When it's bad enough, we have a reputation so we can do that. But I don't see why any attorney would ever assert that the other side was in some way acting in bad faith or wrong to assert every defense they have. I, I, don't, I don't get it. Um, now, do I think the Eighth Circuit got it right. I mean, there was no what's called arguable probable cause to seize the man because he didn't do anything. He just stepped outside of his house. They have to, in order to seize and, and get civil liability, they have to have more than what's called probable cause, which is what a reasonable person would think a crime had occurred and this person had done it. They All they have to have is a, what, what a, not a real obvious mistake. They, they can make an, they can make a mistake and get out of it. But uh, I think in this one, they can't get that far. So, so I'm, I'm going to disagree in part with Mr. Schock. I agree with his analysis of the Eighth Circuit, but I, I'm going to disagree with an attorney being uh, frustrated with the other side for taking this uh, so far. And I think the basis for Mr. Kazali's um, claim about the city taking this too far is that Tashara Jones, the uh, mayor, uh, ran on these concepts of bringing civil rights back to St. Louis. And so trying to say that this action of this kettling and, and arresting people without probable cause was okay goes against everything that she claimed to be for. Connie, I feel like uh, Sheena Hamilton, who's the city councilor, she's kind of in this this um, challenging position here in that, you know, Tashara Jones publicly supported these protesters, was out protesting throughout these Stockley protests. And so Nicole makes a really good point there. At the same time, her client here is the St. Louis police. Do you feel like there's a conflict sort of inherent in that? Uh, I believe that there is somewhat of a conflict uh, because it is her duty and her job to defend uh, uh, the police officers who were involved uh, in this instance. Um, uh, with respect to, you know, the mayor's office, I, you know, I don't think that this is any attempt to expand uh, the uh, uh, qualified immunity doctrine in, in any shape, form, or fashion. I think it's just maintaining the line. Uh, the other thing that you do have to take into account is that I believe there are roughly 14 lawsuits uh, that were filed as a result of this kettling incident that took place uh, back during these riots. And I think that the city councilor's office has to take into account the precedent that it would be setting uh, by uh, simply not defending itself aggressively in this case. And you have another 13, 14 uh, plaintiffs uh, who have uh, lawsuits pending uh, regarding this matter. I'd also add that uh, the mayor has a duty to preserve the fiscal health of the city and that involves not paying people who sue the city as much as possible. That's her job. I mean, I, I agree with the decision. I think there should be liability, but I, I think that certainly there's been an issue with public officials wasting money, et cetera, et cetera, in the city. So I don't blame her f from the, the side of protecting the taxpayer. Mm -hmm. I don't think the city has insurance. I think they're paying it out of pocket. That is my understanding of, of how the city does have to deal with these matters. And yeah, as Connie mentioned, there are 14 lawsuits is a lot of lawsuits. Now, if Conceivably, you're, there could end up being 100. Yeah, I think one of these is a class action lawsuit. I mean, if you're rounding up 109 people, as they did that night, there's, there's some liability on that. There's a real interesting question here that I find myself sort of wanting to know a little bit more about. Connie mentioned she thought this would not expand the definition of qualified immunity, that this would merely sort of hold the line. Is that your reading? of this as well? I, I don't have a good opinion on that. Uh, the Supreme Court had tuned up in front of it a year or two ago four cases that where the qualified immunity had been granted and it was seemed outrageous and everybody in the civil rights bar thought they're going to take the cases, they're going to have a long hard look at it, maybe throw out QI, what's called QI in the business, and 
And then one morning they turned them all down. They denied what's called certiorari, which is a fancy legal word for when they, when they deny it, that means they won't hear the case. They hear about one in 200. So it's not exactly easy to get heard by the Supreme Court of the United States. When, when, that was, when, when they did that, everybody thought, QI is here to stay for another four or five years till it comes around again. That police will continue to have qualified immunity to protect them from, uh, from these types of lawsuits. Yeah. Basically, you have to show that there was a real similar case in the past and that the, 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 the cops should have been reading the legal opinions, which, of course, they never do, uh, and understood what the law was. And so, ah, that's come up before. I know I can't kick the guy in the head. Yeah. So the St. Louis American weighed in on this. This is something where a lot of media outlets ended up covering uh, Javad Kazali's unhappiness with this. And the St. Louis American took Mayor Jones's side on this. They said she'd been the subject of a targeted smear campaign. They said this about the Eighth Circuit ruling. They said, if left unchallenged, the legal decision could set a dangerous precedent where any plaintiff could force a defendant to pay, even without actually proving the two parties ever interacted. Yeah, I think what the St. Louis American did is that they regurgitated the city's arguments. And so I think, you know, they got it right in the sense that they appropriately regurgitated the city's arguments. I don't think the city's arguments are right. And I want to make really clear what the city, what in a sense the city's arguments were and what the danger of the city's arguments were. First, one of the arguments from the city for rehearing on bank was that subordinates shouldn't have to independently verify, meaning subordinate police officers shouldn't have to independently verify probable cause when they, um, when their supervisors tell them there's probable cause to arrest people. So they're saying the subordinates shouldn't be liable if their supervisors told them there's probable cause. Well, then in the second you know, cause relied on, point relied on for um, trying to get rehearing, they say the supervisor shouldn't be liable because they didn't actually touch the people, only the subordinates did. Well, you put those two things together and you've got something that's really problematic. So now the sub this police subordinates aren't liable, the supervisors aren't liable. You've got a situation where potentially qualified immunity is letting police officers get away with whatever they want. And so although the St. Louis American did just regurgitate those arguments, I think those arguments follow down a dangerous dangerous path. Connie, do you share any of those concerns? Uh, I, I, I certainly uh, do agree uh, with Nicole's points that she raised that it does follow a dangerous path. Uh, however, uh, I think the, the flip side of that is that uh, I think that uh, for those who are on the side of, of civil rights and of curbing qualified immunity, that uh, I think that this would be a ruling that uh, uh, those supporters, those individuals would support. Uh, because it does, in a sense, uh, open the door for those individuals who are challenging qualified immunity. So I think it kind of goes against, you know, that article kind of goes against curbing qualified immunity, which is something I would think that the American would support. Yeah, it's interesting to see the, the strange bedfellows right. in this case. Now, we have some breaking news here. Uh, Attorney Javad Kazali has just confirmed to our producer the Eighth Circuit recently denied the city's en banc petition. The city would have 90 days to ask the U.S. Supreme Court to take it up. The city told Javad that they intend to take this to the U.S. Supreme Court. Beavis, it seems like you're skeptical that the U.S. Supreme Court is, one, is going to want to hear the city's appeal on this. I wouldn't bet my firstborn son, but I would bet a great deal of money. Uh, my daughter's married. I have no more responsibility for her. Uh, let's go over these numbers. One in 200. Uh, the people who get cert are people who have worked there before. They have, uh, they've got pals in the clerk's offices. The, the person signing the petition used to actually work for one of the Supreme Court judges. There are lawyers from Washington's biggest law firms involved on the pleadings. St. Louis City's not going to get cert. That's ridiculous. Beavis, this is such a cynical view of, of justice. This is not how I thought things worked with our Supreme Court. Am I being naive here that, that I'm a little surprised? Well, here's an interesting aspect of it. A great critic of qualified immunity has been Justice Thomas, despised by the left for, to me, inexplicable reasons. But um, uh, it, it is interesting when, when everybody thought that it was going to be heard two or three years ago, this issue of qualified immunity, where the cops get out of liability, they thought Justice Thomas would lead the way. 
But um, it's important, and I don't know how much you want to get into the fine points of politics on that court, but Justice Roberts really is a politician. Mm -hmm. He's super interested in the idea of more unanimous decisions. He doesn't like getting into these real contentious cases. He's got them this term, whether he likes them or not. But um, I, I think the chance of this going forward is zero. Yeah, I agree. I agree with Mr. Shock on that. I, I'm not going to comment on, you know, this, the inner workings of the Supreme Court in that way. But one of the things I do want to say for our listeners is that um, I think some interesting things have ha been happening around the country because this is not happening in a vacuum here in St. Louis. So this kettling concept has happened in other places. And um, I do want to say that in Columbus, Ohio, there's recently a, an article in the New York Times that uh, they just settled a case for this exact type of behavior for a significant amount of money. I think mm -hmm. it was $5 million. And then in Denver, uh, they just went to trial on one of these very similar behavior, and uh, the city lost uh, to the tune, I think, of about $4 million. So St. Louis is not the only place where this is happening, and I think, you know, this is going to be an issue around the country. And we could have some exposure on this. It sounds like I'm going to squeeze in a phone call here right before we take our break. Ron is calling from Ferguson. Ron, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Uh, yes, I'd like to say I think there needs to be some federal guidelines in dealing with these protests. When you have citizens that live in the neighborhoods and there's gunfire and Molotov cocktails going around, it would be very hard for the police to distinguish who's doing what. And I believe that either a federal judge or the police chief or somebody should be able to declare it a crime scene and give everybody five minutes to leave. And anybody that's left behind should or can be arrested. Uh, Ron, thank you for sharing that and, and calling from Ferguson. It sounds like you may maybe have um, some history with dealing with something like this in your own neighborhood, Nicole. Yeah, the problem with that concept is that we have to have something when we arrest people called probable cause. And probable cause can't be for an entire group of people. It has to be for an individual. For example, if you find uh, drugs in a car and there are four people in the car and you don't know who the drugs belong to, you can't arrest all four of them. And that's exactly what, you're, what the caller is talking about on a grander scale. Let's just arrest everybody in this area because we don't know who's doing what. You can't do that. It's unconstitutional. We have to have probable cause to arrest people. Yeah, and I also think about a guy like this retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel. He steps out of his apartment thinking all of this is over, doesn't hear the orders that people were supposed to disperse. The next thing you know, he's been detained for 14 hours. It's hard not to be sympathetic to this guy's lawsuit. Um, if you have a question or comment for our legal roundtable, you can call us at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. We are talking today to attorneys Nicole Gorofsky, Beavis Shock, and Connie McFarland-Butler. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back shortly. We're going to talk about Josh Hawley and possible copyright infringement. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. And now back to our conversation. Today's our legal roundtable. We were just talking about qualified immunity uh, with attorney Beavis Shock, who practices in Clayton at Shock Law, as well as Connie McFarland Butler, who practices at the law office of Connie McFarland Butler, that's in Florissant, and Nicole Gorofsky, who practices at Gorofsky Law, LLC. So switching gears here, a photographer snapped Senator Josh Hawley outside the Capitol on January 6th, and Hawley was pumping his fist at the assembled protesters. That was an iconic image. Some people may have thought Hawley would be ashamed of his association with an angry mob. But now the junior senator from Missouri is using the photo in his own fundraising. That's earned him a cease and desist from the news site Politico, which owns the rights to the image. So this is a big, complicated question, but I guess I'll start with a simple one. Connie, does Josh Hawley have the right to use this image? Uh, based upon my assessment, no, he does not. 
a cap a, a photo ca- I'm sorry a photograph that is taken for you know news purposes uh, does not belong to the person who's depicted in the photograph. The photograph belongs to the photographer who took the photograph, and if the fo- photographer is uh, uh, working for a news outlet or is employed by someone who he's been hired to cover the event, then the photograph belongs to the employer. Now, Holly's campaign indicated uh, that they do have the right to use that photograph for fundraising purposes under the fair use doctrine, uh, but I don't believe that that it is applicable in this instance. Uh, the fair use doc- doctrine indicates that uh, uh, copyrighted material may be infringed upon for a limited purpose if that purpose is for the public good or benefit. So uh, oftentimes, uh, the fair use doctrine is used when someone is attempting to critique copyrighted material or if uh, the material is used for scholarly purposes, for research purposes, or for news reporting. In this instance, the photograph is being used for fundraising political purposes, so I don't see how it falls within the fair use doctrine, so I do believe it is a copyright infringement. Beavis, do you share that perspective? I do. I, I, so I have a theory that, that, that Josh Hawley could try, and I, I, I tried to find some cases on it, and I didn't. The theory would be that because this photograph has been used by countless news organizations all over the world, mm-hmm. that now the uh, owner cannot claim that they have a right to say to one guy, Hey, Josh Hawley, you can't use it. And of course, we all have to ignore the fact that it's Josh Hawley. That's not relevant. There's an inclination always. Everybody hates Josh Hawley. I don't, but most people do. We got to leave that out. Uh, I I appreciate that. We're all equal under the law, right? So the analysis I would have is, let's say somebody owns a plot of land in St. Louis, and they decide to have it be open to anybody who would like to come and walk their dog. And then one particular person shows up, and the owner says, you can't come. But everybody else can come. I think the owner can do that. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think my theory is going to have any legs. But, it, but there's, my nose tells me that Josh Hawley's got an argument, once it's been on every news media in the world, which it has been, that they can't claim that only he can't use it, which is what they're doing. I mean, there's a huge flaw in that argument. And and the flaw is that the fair use doctrine says that one of the exceptions to copyright law is that you can use it for news reporting. Josh Hawley is not using it for news reporting. He's using it to make money. Yeah, I mean, do you think if, if Josh was using this and sent out like a newsletter saying, some people think that I'm this because I was pumping my fist, but here I'm going to comment and critique upon that argument, he might be more in the clear versus if he was selling coffee mugs. Well, that's more akin to uh, news reporting, which would be an exception under the fair use doctrine. Uh, but simply because it's been placed on some coffee mugs and and some lithographs and, and being sold in order to fund a political campaign, uh, I don't think it passed muster. Okay. So it sounds like people are saying they think Josh Hawley probably can't be selling these coffee mugs. It's interesting. There was this report about the cease and desist. Hawley, in his his way, came back fiery, um, you know, said he's got this this right to do this. If you were Politico, would you sue Josh Hawley? Well, no. And the reason is that it just draws attention to Josh Hawley, and Politico hates Josh Hawley, (laughs) in in the fact of the matter. It... um, you got to hand it to Josh Hawley. Here's something that he did that's sort of part of an event that's universally condemned. And his theory is, I'm going to turn it around and make it good for me. I respect his chutzpah, his cleverness, but I'm kind of with Connie and Nicole. I. I think he's going to (laughs) lose. Well, we are going to stay on top of that one. Here's another matter that we have covered in the past that I want to stay on top of. Uh, The Missouri Attorney General's Office. They have been very busy lately. Lots of lawsuits filed by Eric Schmidt, uh, who is also, we should mention, running for Senate. Not saying those things are necessarily related, uh, but his name has certainly been in the headlines a lot lately. Um, Is he filing so many lawsuits he doesn't have time to finish what he starts? Well, he sued 45 school districts. One of them is in Lee's Summit. And the attorney for that district went viral with a letter that basically told Eric Schmidt to go pound sand. Um, Got a lot of attention for this. 
even after that happened and that attorney earned all this this fame as the guy who pushed back on on uh, Eric Schmidt, Eric Schmidt missed a key court deadline. He cited excusable neglect. And the breaking news on this, the judge has now granted a default judgment to Lee's summit saying, hey, Eric Schmidt, you missed this deadline. Too late. Does that seem warranted in this case? Uh, absolutely, I do believe that it is warranted by the judge. I mean, we have uh, rules of civil procedure that govern uh, how we are to respond and, and how we are to file as attorneys. And uh, his office should have, uh, you know, docketed the date uh, that this response was in fact due. Now, they did prepare a, a response after the deadline asking for additional time, indicating that there was an excusable, excusable neglect. And there was an affidavit that was attached to the motion that indicated that the deadline was missed for excusable neglect. However, they failed to indicate in the, the affidavit what the actual excusable neglect was. Uh, typically, you need to indicate to the court what were the circumstances that led to you missing this deadline. Uh, did you have COVID? Were you out of the office? Uh, 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 did you have someone in your family who passed away and that caused you know, some reason for you to miss this deadline? But just simply uh, screaming that it was excusable neglect and not offering an actual explanation to the court, I think... Uh, uh, would uh, cause the court to have justification in ruling in favor of the school district. Would it be an excusable neglect if you said, you know what, I filed 45 of these. I only have, I don't know, a dozen attorneys working on my staff. Nicole, that would not pass muster. No, I think I think one of the interesting things to note here is, as everything in the legal world, excusable neglect is actually a legal term of art. It's been defined here. So, and I think the I think the definition is kind of fun for the listeners. So excusable neglect is the failure to act not because of the party's own carelessness, inattention, or willful disregard of the court's process, but because of some unexpected or unavoidable hindrance or accident. Hmm. So that makes it very clear what counts as excusable neglect. And just, you know, oops, I missed it, doesn't count. So, Beavis, we talked about a case previously on this show, different panel, but we were talking about how Kim Gardner's office had failed to file a response to one of attorney Dave Rowland's cases. And this went on for like months and months. And I believe Judge McGraw gave them another chance, heard them out. This seems like a pretty swift resolution here. Do you think Schmidt's office could have grounds to appeal? In my experience on these excusable neglect situations, the judge has a lot of discretion. I mean, it seems like it's a, it's a quite clearly defined term, as Nicole said. And Connie's certainly right. You're supposed to say why. I didn't know he hadn't said why. That's going to hurt him bad, badly. Um, but um, uh, I think the problem the AG really faces is that he chose to file 45 lawsuits. He's got a staff of numerous lawyers on the state payroll. Mm-hmm. Who's and, and and every every lawyer and every law firm is supposed to have this docketing system. I think uh, County spoke of that and kind of got to know what your deadlines are. And and surely if he had gone in on the right day at eleven fifty nine with a hey I need more time may I please have some the judge would have said sure. But when you miss it that badly, you're in trouble. And somebody in his office dropped the ball. I mean that is the exclusive neglect probably is such-and-so employee made a dumb mistake and got a docket wrong, and I don't want to give their name mm. and embarrass them. That's probably why they didn't say what it was. And they figured, well, we're the AG. The judge will let us get away with it, and that's not how it went. The judge did not. <laughs> And I need to jump right in here with a quick correction. Uh, The judge has not yet done that. I'm recording this after the show initially aired during the noon hour. During that discussion of A.G. Eric Schmidt's case against the Lee's Summit School District, we wrongly indicated that the judge had granted default judgment to the district. The district has submitted a proposed order, but the judge has not signed it. We regret the error. Okay, well, something else the AG's office has been up to, well, in this case, it turns out has not been up to, and that's issuing legal opinions. Tony Messenger reports that Schmidt's office has issued just one in three years. Nicole, is is that a surprise? Um, Is it a surprise? I don't know. Is it somewhat unusual? Yes. I mean, so it seems that the number of AG opinions has been dwindling through the years. Um, And it it does seem that it's part of the job. So the attorney general generally issues legal opinions um, for generally for legislators to know how to legislate. 
it helps give them guidance. They're not mandatory, but it helps give them guidance on how to legislate. And um, I think I read that uh, Webster, when he was the attorney general, issued 72 of these legal opinions. I think Attorney General Nixon uh, did somewhere in the double digits as well. But then I think that it said uh, Josh Hawley did none and Schmidt has done one. So it's clearly dwindling. Um, I think that might be um, a result of what's happening in our political culture. I think I think lawsuits are being filed for show and um, well, political opinions, uh, or I'm sorry, AG opinions are not for show. They're actually substantive. So uh, yes, I think they're declining. Am I surprised? No. Is it disappointing? Yes. Beavis, what do you make of this? Do you think he's missing out on, on a valuable function of the office? Well, I don't think he has to do it. Um, he would probably make half the people mad every time he were to do it. That's probably why he doesn't do it. Um, I mean, I'm working on right, one right now involving a mechanics lien. There's a requirement of a notice in bold print. And there's a legal opinion from the attorney general from 25 years ago that says, underlining does not make it bold. <laughs> and I cite, that's the legal opinion? Absolutely. I'm citing that in a, in a court filing I'm working on right now. Well, that sounds pretty sensible. But there's, see, there's never been a formal opinion from a court on that opinion, on, on that issue. Yeah. So all I can cite is the attorney general's opinion. And that has no, it has persuasive value, but no what's called precedential value. So it's a little tricky. But I, uh, I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear why he doesn't do it. He just doesn't want to make half the people mad. Doesn't yeah, he enjoy making people mad, though? Isn't that part of his, his shtick? Or are these people that this isn't the right kind of mad? This maybe doesn't foment the, the, the outrage the that works for him? The does not read them. And so <laughs> okay. it's not going to make his political supporters be more supportive. So one other thing um, involving the Missouri Attorney General's office, the Missouri Independent reported that Schmidt has not been going after state agencies who fail to produce public records. They report that when a member of the public files a Sunshine Law complaint against a state agency, you might think, okay, the AG's going to look into this and get me my records. The AG's office instead assumes the role of legal counsel for the agency the complaint is logged against. That's even though people are told to file these complaints with the Attorney General. Connie, is this an issue? Uh, I think that uh, it is an issue, uh, particularly for individuals who are seeking records from state agencies. Uh, the attorney general's office, you know, by state statute, these complaints are to be lodged, these open records complaints are to be lodged with the attorney general's office. However, the AG's office is also responsible for defending these state agencies. So oftentimes, if the sunshine request involves a state agency, then the AG's office will use the client defense or the client justification that the state agency is, in fact, our client. Therefore, we will not pursue any action against the state agency. Uh, which there is some some merit uh, in that argument that it does present a conflict of interest mm -hmm. for the AG's office to be on one side of the argument uh, as well as on the uh, other side of the argument. So you can't represent the plaintiff as well as the defendant in, in a case. So I think that the state legislature should address that loophole uh, in the state statute. Uh, the state of Illinois and I also believe the state of Iowa have set up independent offices to manage these sunshine requests so that the AG's office is not caught up in this conflict of interest, and I think that's something that the state of Missouri needs to address uh, through legislation. Beavis, do you think we need a change here so that we don't have kind of the same office dealing with both ends of this? Well, I, I agree with every single word out of Connie's mouth. I, you know, I, won't have, I would add one thing, which is that the private individual can get a lawyer and make a lawsuit and, and get attorney's fees. I lost one of those cases at the Supreme Court of Missouri, which really sucked. But... Um, it, and when you say they can get attorney's fees, an, an attorney might be willing to take this well, case because... exactly, exactly. Yeah. Be, and, 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 there, and there are, there, I mean, uh, D this guy Dave Rowland you mentioned earlier, uh, Missouri Freedom or something, whatever he calls himself. I mean, he's, in, he's kind of in that business that, of bringing these Sunshine Act cases, and he can make a living doing it. And there'll be other attorneys. It's not that complicated. And uh, I think the more cases that are brought... And the more precedent there is in favor of the attorney's fees being paid for a private counsel, the less the attorney general will be called on and then put in this conflict position. 
So officially for the record, Dave is with the Freedom Center of Missouri. But yes, he he is making a living doing these kind of cases, and it's good to see there's a way to make that work. We are talking today to our legal roundtable. That is attorney Beavis Shock. We're also joined by Connie McFarland Butler and Nicole Gorofsky. We do need to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we'll discuss that terrible tragedy in Florida involving a St. Louis County teen and an out-of-control uh, plummeting roller coaster ride. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at choosewood.com. Welcome back. A terrible tragedy in Florida has prominent attorney Benjamin Crump again getting involved with St. Louis area families. Crump was called upon by the victims of the Edwardsville tornado last year. Now he's representing the Berkeley family of a teenage boy who was killed on an amusement park ride in Orlando. And our legal roundtable is convened today. Let's discuss that. We're joined today by attorney Nicole Gorofsky and Connie McFarland Butler and Beavis Shock. Nicole, this is obviously an awful, awful tragedy. Do you think the family of Tyre Sampson? and has a pretty easy case here. Yeah, I definitely think there's a case here. I'm not entirely sure where the case is going to be. I think that remains to be seen because, I mean, obviously there's negligence. I think the question is going to be, is it going to be negligence against the amusement park for what they did in locking this kid into this ride? Or is it going to be product liability in how um, the locking mechanism worked? I think that some of that remains to be seen, and I think they're still looking into that. But I definitely think someone's going to be liable here. And so how do attorneys deal with that? If you know something terrible has happened and that somebody should have to pay up, do you just sue everybody? Uh, absolutely. Everyone involved in this is going to get sued, the manufacturer as well as the park itself and potentially the uh, employee uh, who was responsible for ensuring that this, this kid was locked into this ride. I mean, you know, this isn't just any ordinary roller coaster. This was a free-falling Built as the world's tallest free-falling uh, 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 amusement park ride, uh, and uh, by accounts, this 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 uh, this uh, uh, apparatus stood as tall as the Statue of Liberty, and would take the riders up, would tilt them over where they were facing the ground, and then the roller coaster would plummet to the ground at uh, 70 miles, uh, 75 miles per hour or greater. So uh, you know, uh, uh, there should have been a lot of caution, an abundance of caution uh, when, you know, uh, 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 engineering and constructing this ride and also in determining who gets on the ride and ensuring that they are safely uh, locked into the ride. Uh, now, I have uh, teenage kids, and uh, from what uh, uh, black teen Twitter and Instagram, what they're saying, uh, and I'm not sure if this is from some of the football players who were there uh, on spring break when this incident happened, uh, but allegedly there were two employees who were responsible for checking passengers. There was allegedly a woman who was taking half of the, there are 30 passengers on this ride, who was checking half of the passengers on the ride, and then there was a male employee who was responsible for checking checking the other half. Allegedly, the female employee was doing her job in checking, but the male employee allegedly was flirting with a woman who oh. was getting on the ride and did not conduct the check. That's what has been alleged. Now, whether or not there's truth to it, uh, that remains to be seen, but I'm sure that Benjamin's Crump team will delve into that. Uh, but everybody's going to get sued, and I suspect that because of the nature of this tragedy, more likely than not, they're all going to pony up some money so that they can get out of it. Beavis, there's no qualified immunity for amusement park workers. <laughs> no, uh, but but there is something called respondeat superior, a little Latin there for uh, make it hard to understand for the public. That means <laughs> Thanks, that Beavis. that means that the boss is responsible. Uh, I think the only question in this case is how much um, every insurance company they're ringing the bell at London's uh, Lloyd's. Uh, uh, I mean, I I would say that case will go for around ten million. Wow, that's my estimate. There'll Easily. be a demand for twenty. There'll be an offer of two. They'll go to mediation. Some retired, very senior judge will will 
talk about a number and the attorney will start salivating at the uh, contingency, one-third fee, a little bit like the city deal with the Rams. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, I think this is a very good settlement. They're already counting their their shekels and uh, how much dough they're going to get in the, hey, in hey, the deal. <laughs> yeah, Where I are we did, going with this, Beavis? I like contingency work, too, but this one... I mean, if you could say, if the family would have said to Benjamin Crump, hey, we want you to do this for 20%, he probably would have said yes. But this is a huge case because it's so obviously wrong what happened. And, and you mentioned this Latin. Uh, this Latin basically holds that the boss is more responsible than the individual workers strapping them in? When, when an employee commits a error that is negligence. Like in, a flirtation as opposed to checking weight? In, in the ordinary course of doing their job, as opposed to one frolic and detour when they run off and do something crazy, uh, then the boss, the employer, is responsible for the, for the amount. Now, this is an insurance case. This has nothing to do with anything except an insurance company or more than one insurance company. Okay. So you, you don't think this is something where, say, the individual president of, of this company, he's not going to be in trouble. Okay. It's going to be somebody needs to write a, a big check here. Well, such a sad case. And, and Connie, it's interesting to think, I didn't realize they're marketing this as this is the highest ever. You'd think in that case they'd want to be so careful about who they're letting on this thing. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, from uh, the accounts that I have read, uh, because uh, th this young man was a very tall, large football player, although he was in middle school. Uh, he is supposedly uh, 6'5", 350-something pounds. Uh, apparently, uh, he tried to get on other various rides at the park that day, and uh, no other operator would allow him on a ride. Mm -hmm. But he got to this ride, and they allowed him on. On, on and something went terribly wrong and according to the news reports he knew instantly that something was wrong he said I don't feel right or something to that effect if something happens please tell my mother and father that I love them oh. and, and he fell from the apparatus shortly it's thereafter. It's just tragic. Oh it's so horrible I think every parent just hearing this it just it just breaks your heart so bad. Let's talk about something else that's messed up, but in a, a far less tragic way. Um, this past month saw the conclusion of a hotly contested case we talked about previously on this show. That involves William Tisby. He's the private investigator who was hired by Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner to look into claims that then-Governor Eric Greitens had taken a semi-nude photo of his hairdresser without her consent. Now, Tisby had been facing six perjury charges, one evidence tampering charge. These are over allegations that he lied in a deposition. He's now pled to a misdemeanor. Nicole, what do you make of the resolution of this case? You know, I think I think it's fair. I think, you know, he pled to a misdemeanor count. He came out, you know, with, uh, you know, I think it's fair. I th that's all I can really say about it. Beavis, do you think they should have uh, held strong, tried to get a felony conviction? Absolutely. This guy is a crook, and he should have... If he wasn't part of the sort of law enforcement world and all that, they, they would have been tougher. And I, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office is usually very, very strong in my, my experience. Um, and I don't know why they thought they couldn't make the felony a trial. So, they so I, I will say, I think they had an outside prosecutor in this case. It was someone from another county they brought in to take the lead on it. Um, was it federal or state? It was, no, it was state, and it was an I'm outside sorry. prosecutor for John, from Johnson County. I have to step up for the U.S. Attorney's Office there. So maybe does yeah. that help explain? They just want to dispose of this thing. That's the thing. They just wanted this to be over. It was going to be a mess. I think it needed to be over. I think it was fair. So some journalists on uh, Channel 9's Donnybrook panel were discussing this case, and they suggested, oh, this is some sort of deal, maybe that this would be a way to ensure his cooperation in the case against Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner that's being handled by the Office of Disciplinary Counsel. That is not a criminal case, but looking at her conduct as an attorney related to this same case. I was pretty skeptical of that argument being advanced by some of those panelists. Could you imagine that being a case here? Something like they let him plead to a misdemeanor and then he's vowing his cooperation behind the scenes? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, anything is possible. Uh, I, I don't think that it is likely. Uh, I think that uh, 
uh, you know, I guess to piggyback off of Beavis's point, why would they do this or why would they agree to him pleading to this misdemeanor? I think that, you know, I guess the listeners should take into account that this gentleman was 69, almost 70 years old. Uh, when he entered into this plea agreement. And you also have to take into account that this gentleman was an ex-FBI agent uh, who had faithfully served his country for a number of years before he got entangled into, you know, this mess with the Griden investigation. And I think that a lot of that factored into the plea agreement that they, you know, ultimately reached in this matter. Uh, does it, uh, uh, would it harm Kim Gardner? Uh, if, in fact, you know, he pled guilty to some uh, misdealings uh, in, in his investigation, would it help the Griden uh, Senate campaign to have him plead guilty at this stage uh, so that the Griden campaign can claim that all of this was a witch hunt? Uh, that's something to, to give some serious consideration to. When I was a prosecutor for 10 years, this is the first time I think I've seen a real perjury charge actually come to fruition. It's just very rare. It is interesting how, you know, it, I'm constantly hearing from lawyers, oh, so-and-so flat out lied in this deposition, and it never seems to result in criminal charges. And I feel like I've known gadflies who've tried to take these cases to prosecutors, and they're not interested. Is it fairly unusual that this guy ended up in the, the jam he was in in the first place? Well... This was a case against the governor of the state. Yeah. This couldn't have been a more public thing. This gentleman, I mean, there's sort of two sides to Connie's point. She says, hey, a, a long history of good service to our country. On the other hand, he betrayed the badge. And, and that has to, the other people who are in that field have to know, can't do that or you're going down. And they aren't going to learn that from this case. Now, is there a side deal? Uh he, he said, or some has spoken for him, said that what I did, I did alone, all by myself. I thought it was Bernie Madoff all over again. I, I mean... So that I, suggests no side deal if he's saying that. Well, I guess I'm cynical enough to think the more he says it, the less it's true. He's a <laughs> perjurer. <laughs> One last thing about this that I found very curious. I read in the Missouri Independent a bit about his defense in this case. Uh, Tisabee's lawyer said that he had reserved signature on this deposition. He requested a copy of the deposition so he could review it before he signed it. 36 days later, he was scheduled for a second deposition where he thought he might correct some misstatements. He had still not received a copy of his first one, so he even hired a lawyer and ab attempted to obtain a continuance um, so he could review the deposition and clear the record if needed. The fact he didn't sign off on this thing, does that give him any sort of, of defense? Like, he never swore that this was true? I think it's an argument. I mean, when you do a deposition, you get a chance, if you don't waive signature right right while you're sitting there in the moment, you get a chance to take your, uh, get a written copy of the de deposition, review it, and make uh, any changes. Now, you're not supposed to change substantive issues. You're only supposed to change errors in uh, transcription. Okay, so he but, couldn't pull back, like, oh, no, actually, it turned out I took notes. I was wrong in those six answers. That would not be a normal thing to change. I've still seen people do that. And were they charged with perjury? No. But were they investigating the governor? <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of facts in this one. What, can I say one thing? Yes. At the beginning of the deposition, the witness is sworn. It's not, the swearing doesn't happen when the person reads it and signs it. The swearing happens at the front. Yeah. Do you think we should see more perjury cases brought against people if they're sort of willful lying when they're under oath? I, don't th I think we'd clog the courts up if we challenged them all. I mean, lying is how lawyers stay in business. <laughs> you know, when I was in Houston as a reporter, they used to call the family court their perjury palace because just so many, like, warring spouses and, and child cases, people would just come in and make stuff up. It, it seems endemic to the profession. All right, one last matter I'm going to squeeze in here just because I find it kind of funny. A cereal food label litigator is on an epic losing streak. This is thanks to an East St. Louis judge, U.S. District Judge David Duke. Dugan dismissed a class action filed by the New York attorney Spencer Sheehan earlier this month. Sheehan sued over Haagen-Dazs milk chocolate ice cream bars. They were described as dipped in and then drizzled in rich milk chocolate. 
but that milk chocolate was actually milk chocolate and vegetable oil coating. So this guy brought a lawsuit. The judge kicked it out. Well, in the previous month, this same lawyer sued over Dove bars, Pop-Tarts, Whole Food ice cream bars. All were losers. So I'm feeling like my march seems a little better in retrospect. These seem like incredibly weak claims. At some point, our judge is just going to start throwing all these kind of things out. Well, first of all, I love your dramatic reading. Thank you. But <laughs> second of all, I think what the judge said is, look, there's a requirement to put all the ingredients on the back. The the companies did put all the ingredients on the back. This guy's really just filing a lawsuit because of the, you know, marketing campaign that's on the front of the box. Sorry, not going to do it. Any And these have been kicked out of the court all over the country. So has this judge left the world at the risk of vegetable oil coating? Should we be afraid here? Let's explain how these cases get resolved. Everybody who bought the Haagen-Dazs wasn't going to get a dollar. There's something called a private settlement where the company agrees to quit claiming they're dipping it with no vegetable oil, only milk chocolate, and the attorney puts a million in the bag and goes away. That's what that attorney wanted. He wasn't out to help the people who bought the Haagen-Dazs under false pretenses. That's a ridiculous and absolute baloney. So I think I'm with... Uh, Nicole on that one. The judge got that one right. So no tears for Spencer Sheehan. Well, and with that, we're going to end this week's Legal Roundtable. Beva Shock, uh, thank you so much for making your Legal Roundtable debut. We hope you'll come back. Thank you. And Nicole Garofsky, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And Connie McFarland-Butler, thank you so much. Thank you all. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Fenske with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.